You can have a seat. And I think I heard amidst the mumbles of, thanks be to God, also mumbles of, why didn't I go to brunch instead? What a text, huh? Wow. Hope you guys have some ideas. I'm not, no. I, this, there's, a, there's a beauty in preaching through books of the Bible like we do, like we're working through 1 Corinthians, because it forces you to step into spaces that you might want to try to dodge. But I think we'll actually find that if we sit in this text for a little bit, we're going to find grace for us. And so that's why we want to step into this uh, this morning. My name is Jeff Nine. If we haven't had a chance, I mean, I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and I want to thank you for being here. If you're here and you're not a Christian, um, thank you for being here especially. Um, we want to be a church where there's no question off limits. Uh, there's no skepticism that gets you pushed out the door. Um, we, we would love to talk to you about anything that comes up, and uh, this text may bring up a couple of those questions. But I just want to say we're not, we're not, we're not going to shy away from them. Uh, but we got work to do. Because this, this is a gnarly one. And so let's pray and let's dive in. God, would you speak to us today? Because we need your words. God, from what clearly were hard words from a fathering leader to a church that needed to hear them, I pray that, God, we would be quick to hear. So would you speak to us today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, this chapter starts out with a bang, huh? The, but let's remember that Paul doesn't write, uh, didn't write these letters and go in chapter four and then he writes a big five and he goes, I'm gonna continue on in chapter five. Those numbers were added way later in church history just for us to be able to reference things. That Paul is, is just in the middle of his argument. He's just in the middle of his letter to this church. So he, this is continued from what uh, Derek led us through last week and it will continue on in what Chad will talk about next week and in all the weeks to come. You see, last week we saw Paul bring a stinging rebuke to the church at Corinth because he loved them. He wasn't being sarcastic with them because he disliked them. He loved them like a father and was trying to get their attention. His tone was corrective, even uh, in it, while it was fatherly. But it's those particular themes that he brings out in chapter 4 that he brings to bear on a specific situation here in chapter 5. Let's look at those first two verses. He says, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that's not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. See, there are two destructive things happening in the church in this moment. The first is this man's behavior. He has taken his father, he has taken his stepmother into either a, a marriage that's, un, uh, 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 that's unallowed or, has, or is simply in a sexual relationship with her. But regardless, what Paul says is this behavior is not just rejected by the Old Testament law, even the culture, the pagan culture around you recognizes that this is wrong. Let's name the destruction that's going on in this man and in this community because of this man's behavior. The second destructive thing is the community's reaction. Instead of responding with mourning, instead of responding with grief, they boast, look at the grace of God. Look at how much God loves us. He, they boasted in a misunderstanding of the gospel that they are, are advocating, are, is, it gives us tolerance and freedom. They misuse gospel freedom. They become presumptuous. So this is why Paul continues in verse 3. 
For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And, is, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See, Paul has three aspects to his response. The first is an authoritative judgment. He, he's not making a judgment because like Paul's like, I think this is wrong. He's saying, God says this is wrong. And so he's not interested in dialogue. He's, he's making a statement. God's law says this is wrong. And he calls a spade a spade. Then he calls for decisive action. There actually needs to be a movement, a change of behavior in the church because of this action, and he calls them to a public response to confront a public sin. And third, he calls for a redemptive removal. We're going to get to this in just a second, but his removal here of this man is not punitive. It's actually the desire is for it to be redemptive. His desire, he says, is the salvation of this man's soul. So whatever he's doing here, whatever he's calling the church to do is actually for the hope of redemption. Now, we aren't going to focus a ton on the specifics of this passage, and you guys go, whew, good. Uh, we're going to talk about biblical sexual ethics in a couple of weeks, because Paul's going to come back around to this point. Um, we're, we're not going to talk a ton about this specific situation. Uh, we're going to get to some of these pieces as we go, but I, wanna, I, want, I, I think there are seven key takeaways for us from this text that we need to hear. Seven key takeaways from this passage. The first is this. Sin is real, and it is always destructive. Sin is real, and it is always destructive. I say sin is real because we live in a cultural moment in which we have tried to, we've tried to whitewash this, t- t- uh, this term or push it out of view or, 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 or uh, make it insignificant and minimize it. We've domesticated the concept of sin. Francis Spufford says it this way really well in his apologetic, uh, in his book, Unapologetic. He talks about the way that we have minimized the idea of sin as we've used it playfully in the names of ice cream brands, of high-end chocolate truffles, you know, we call them sinfully delicious. Taxes on cigarettes and booze, you know, so-called sin taxes. Or we play off this word in the names of stores that sell everything from lingerie and sex toys to fish, you know, like the restaurant Seven Deadly Fins. We get playful with this word sin. We minimize this sin. But here's the problem. We don't just minimize the term. Over time of just scoffing at it, we minimize what it really is. And we begin to think that just like the term sin can be played with, so can sin itself. Or worse yet, we actually get to the point of thinking that sin doesn't really exist. But sin is real, and it is destructive. It is no mere triviality. You see, what sin is, is is a violation of the goodness of God, of the law of God that's built for our good. God doesn't give us commands in order to just be bossy, does he? When God gives us laws, it is meant for our good. But by rejecting the idea of sin, we are actually also rejecting the idea of God's goodness. I think there are two ways in which we often avoid the reality of sin. The first is just straight up denial. Straight up denial. We dismiss the reality of sin and instead we fixate on things like pathology. 
and diagnoses. Now, pathologies are real and diagnoses are real, and there are times when we have to treat an illness. But too often our culture likes to hide behind pathology and call it sickness when it's actually sin. That too often we get to this point of, of saying, it's not my fault, something else is wrong. Too often we deny sin by uh, hiding behind concept of victimhood. Somebody else made me do it. Now, victimhood is real. There are true victims. But when we hide behind this, ter this, this term or this idea to try to justify ourselves and point the finger at somebody else, we're not dealing with where sin is in our souls. Or we deny the reality of sin just simply through the worship of self-expression. It's just who I am. It's just who I am. As we avoid sin by denial, we also can avoid it by making or by justification, by minimizing it. Saying things like, it's not really that bad. Who does it hurt? The gospel covers it. I want to say this, that just like the church at Corinth, we have blind spots. Now, I hope when we read this text, you're like, I can't believe they would do that. But it's really easy sometimes to see other people's glossing over of sin and miss our own. It's really easy to look at another church at another time and go, how dare they? When they may well look in on us and go, how dare they? If we take this point of the text and we say, well, I wouldn't ever excuse that kind of sexual sin and then just go, I'm done, let's go to brunch, then we've actually missed the, missed the invitation in this text. The invitation here is to recognize that sometimes we need correction from other voices to help us see what we don't see. We are more affected by our culture than we realize. And in a culture that minimizes sin, too often we do too. You see, as we begin to see sin as it truly is, we will actually begin to respond to it appropriately. This leads to the second point. Our response to sin should be mourning, not arrogance. Our response to sin should be mourning, not arrogance. You see, Paul has already pointed out the arrogance of the Corinthian church. Let's look back at the verses we talked about last week, 1 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 18. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with a love in a spirit of gentleness? You see, here now in chapter 5, he simply picks up on the theme and he presses in even deeper. Verse 2, you are arrogant. Ought you not really to mourn? Let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. In verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? I, I point this out because Paul is contrasting. He, he's actually saying that if what we do is minimize sin, it's actually this, un, it's this arrogant posture. To think that somehow we're higher than, than God. That we get to decide what's right and what's wrong. What's out in bounds or what's out of bounds. He says they, 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 they are puffed up, pridefully boasting that to be, on sin, to, to be beyond the clutches of sin. But Paul says that this thing that sounds like power is actually weakness. Our response to sin should be to mourn, 
to grieve. If we recognize the destructive power of sin and, just, and, and recognize what it does to lives and to communities and to families, would we not grieve? When a friend of ours or our, we ourselves are walking through a battle of cancer and we know that there are things affecting the body that are killing the body from within, we don't make light trivia, trivial jokes about it. We mourn. So should we about sin. See, sin must be taken seriously because holiness Matters And God in his word calls us to be holy as he is holy, 1 Peter 1, which leads to my third point. The church is called to pursue holiness together. The church is called to pursue holiness together. There is a massive threat to holiness, to this idea of corporate pursuit of holiness in our cultural moment that we need to stop and recognize. And that is this idea of expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. This sentiment that, uh, that, that's everywhere. It's all, over, uh, it's all over culture. It's even in our conversations often in ways that we're unaware of. Things like, hey, you be you. I was watching football yesterday and in comes an ad. I can't remember what it was about. I just remember the tagline. The, the tagline of the ad for whatever it was was, you do you. And I go, that's dumb. That's just dumb. You be you. You're the only one that actually knows what is fulfilling in life, so go after it. It sounds attractive, but it's a poisoned well. Instead of this, this expressive individualism, we as the church are invited into the reality that we are a sanctified covenant community. A sanctified covenant community. A community drawn together because of what Jesus has done in making a covenant with us. But it is here in order to sanctify us, to make us like him. To actually lead us into the way of life. Purity is central to the theological identity of the church. And we can't get there alone. We need each other. This, I love this quote from Robert Jensen in his book, A Theology and Outline. Wherever you find the church attempting to woo the culture around it to recruit members by being as much like the world around it as possible, you will know that the church has become unholy. The church, when it is the, ch when it is the church, is different. It's different ethically. You can count on it that whatever is taken to be really acceptable behavior in the world at any given time, the church will disapprove, or at least it should. And I love this. The church is holy because it is the people of the holy God. This is why Paul picks up this language of unleavened bread. If you've made bread, and I love making bread, and, and when you're making it, uh, if you're not using yeast, you take this, uh, le this leaven that you've, that you've brought from other doughs that, that has a lot of the, the, the microbes in it, and it leads to the, to the rise in the dough, and you place that, you place just a little bit in this batch of dough, and it, and it, and it affects the whole. It affects the whole loaf. 
He uses this this word very specifically because they knew what this was like because that's how they made bread. And they knew that a little bit affects the whole. And what he's saying is this, that a little bit of sin ignored won't stay off in a corner anywhere. It will affect the whole. That we are to be aggressive in pursuing holiness together because a little unholiness affects the whole. But we can't get there alone. We need others around us. And this is why, fourth, spiritual fathers are needed in the church. I don't want to re-preach Derek's uh, sermon from last week. But what Paul is talking about last week is this idea of the need for spiritual fatherhood. And, and I think in our day, this is particularly needs to be heard because we live in a day in which we want to be our own authority. The idea of the autonomous self, the, the self-starter, the one who stands on his own, on his own feet and doesn't need uh, oversight from anybody else is just kind of in the water in our culture. The self has become supreme. This view of the self leads us to reject all outside authority because we think we have what we need inside of us. We reject all outside authority, whether from God or from others, but the Bible calls us to something else. It actually calls us to the beauty of authority. It actually calls us to the beauty of authority. It presents a godly authority as a good thing to be welcomed and to be embraced. See, Paul is acting as a spiritual father for the Corinthian church. Let's go back to chapter 4, verse 14. I, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. I read those verses to, to, to point out the fact that that's exactly what he's doing in chapter 5. He's being a spiritual dad. He's sending the kids to time out, saying we're going to have a talk about this. This is not okay. But what Paul shows us by being a spiritual dad is that we need spiritual dads. We need spiritual fathers. Yes, we need the Titus 2 ministry that, that Derek alluded to last week of spiritual moms and spiritual dads and spiritual uncles and spiritual nieces and all of that. We need all of that. But there's a particular way here in which God has given the church both elders and apostolic leaders to serve as fathers in the church and that we need that. To this point in 1 Corinthians, Paul has been a father to call out their disunity. He's been a father to call out their rejection of authority. Moving forward, starting next week on, we're going to get a whole slew of things of where he is a father to this church. He calls them out for their lawsuits among each other. He's going to call them out for sexual immorality, for a misunderstanding of marriage. He's going to address questions like head coverings. That one's going to be fun. He's going to address questions of spiritual gifts and what do we do with that. And, and this letter is full of practical advice from a father. And he highlights the fact that we need Spiritual fathers. Elders, apostolic leaders in the church act as spiritual fathers by bringing correction and formation to the church, by being patient and prophetic, and by not being paternalistic, but fatherly. 
Spiritual fathers should approach the church to lead as fellow sheep from a posture of deep love, affection, and compassion. That's what we need in our church. And we need more. So we have here an example of who we need to pursue holiness as a community, but there's also this question of how, and that leads me to the fifth point. Church discipline exists for our good. Now, if you grew up in some churches and I said church discipline, a shiver went down your spine because in some contexts, that word has become a bit of a boogeyman. But I want us to see that church discipline may not be what you think it is, but what it is, I know for sure, is a gift from God for us. You see, there's two aspects of church discipline. There's both formative discipline and corrective discipline. Formative church discipline and corrective church discipline. Most church discipline in a local church is formative. Formative. Matter of fact, right now you're under church discipline. You're engaging in church discipline right here. Being formed by singing songs, responding in prayer, sitting under the word of God, responding to, at the table. Like what we're doing right now is forming being formed as disciples of God. We are in a discipling relationship right here. We're being formed. You're engaging in formative church discipline when you go to community group and discipleship groups. When you attend corporate worship, when you work deeply into counterformation, when you encourage one another and enter into discipleship relationships with one another. We're being formed into the image of Jesus and we're doing that together. That's formative church discipline. But there come moments when we need to move from, from, from simply formation to actually into a step of correction. And by this I mean specific admonishment for specific sin. Specific admonishment for specific sin. Now we often think of church discipline as the, 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 uh, the end of what Paul talks about here about removing somebody. But I want to say that removal is the last step in corrective church discipline, not the first one. The first step where we start is by loving one another enough that we're willing to say something if we see our brothers or sister walking in a way that doesn't line up with Scripture and doesn't walk up that line up with the way of Jesus. And corrective church discipline means I'm willing to hear from you where I'm deviating from the way of Jesus. Corrective church discipline is us living together and being willing to say, I'm concerned here and to move towards one another with a posture of confrontation, not as an aggressive confrontation necessarily, but from a posture of prayer, seeking correction and repentance. Corrective church discipline is never, listen to me, never punitive. The point is never to punish. The point is to draw to repentance. Sometimes, after calling people to repent, when the text is clear and repentance is not there, that removal is necessary. Look at, chapter th- or look at verse 3 in chapter 5. For though absent in body, I'm present in spirit. And it, as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan, wow, for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now, these kinds of steps of corrective church discipline, we hope, are very rare. And I want to remind you, this is the last step, not the first. 
But I think it's important to sit for just a second in what's going on here and why it's going on. You see, what's happening is this, this man, in, this, in question, this man is being removed because his behavior is, is, in, is, in strike, is in deep violation of the law of God. It's deeply uh, destructive to himself and the people around him. It's a known sin, and he has not repented and refuses to repent. And, and, and what Paul is saying is like you need to remove leaven from a loaf so it doesn't affect the whole, you need to remove this man. For the, it's like removing cancer from the body. If it maintains, if it stays there, it's going to infect everything. But this idea of turning over to Satan is not some weird incantation. It's not some, some weird thing where, I'm gonna, where he's going to become possessed. Or, this, is not, this is not a horror flick. This is, this is him saying that, that there is a protective covering that God gives by grace inside the local church and outside in the world is actually the domain of darkness, the domain of, of the evil one, the domain of Satan. He goes, release him. Now he says release him because he wants him to come to repentance. And he says if he's maintained under the, under the safety of the local church, his sin won't actually come to fruition and he may not see the effect it's going to have. So for his soul, release him. When do we do this? Like I said, this is rare, and there are three words that I think help us know when this kind of step needs to be taken, and that is when the sin is serious, outward, and unrepentant. Serious, outward, and unrepentant. Let me talk a little bit about that first one, serious, because there's a sense in which all sin is serious. That was my whole first point. But there are certain sins that hit such destruction for the individual and for the lives around and it hits such a serious degree that it has to be treated differently. It is one thing if this man simply had a flirtatious encounter with this woman. It is another when he engages in an ongoing, inappropriate sexual relationship. We could go down the list of the kinds of things where it, it, it seems to flip into a different category, but that's the kind of thing we're talking about. When the sin is particularly destructive but it's also that it's outward. We're not, we're not saying, I think in your soul this is happening. No, it's actually something that we have evidence for. There's action to the motivations. That it's outward, that it's actually seen, people are aware of it. And then third, it's unrepentant. That the first step is to call somebody to repentance, but if after time, over time, a repeated pattern of rejection of, of repentance happens, then sometimes this step needs to be taken. Kiampa and Rosner say it this way, in all of Paul's letters, no instruction speaks more forcefully about the seriousness of sin, the holiness of God's people, and their corporate standing before him than this passage, which is the longest text in the New Testament on the subject of church discipline. The church must expel the wicked man, listen, in the hope of regaining him, and above all, to protect the community standing before God in the world. Church discipline is a gift to us. Sixth, judgment isn't just good, it's necessary. 
I don't know when it happened that in our culture, American culture, the most quoted Bible verse went from John 3.16 to Matthew 7.1. I don't know when it happened, but it's obvious. Matthew 7.1 is, don't judge, lest you be judged. We're really quick to whip that one out, aren't we? Don't judge. My kids probably hate it when I hear them that phrase uttered because I jump on it all the time. Our culture is obsessed with you can't judge me. And then we try to point to Jesus for justification for it. But what's interesting is in Matthew 7, he says those words and 14 verses later, he tells them to judge the leaders around them by the works. In other words, he's not saying don't judge. What he's calling out is this tendency towards self-righteousness that where I point the finger at you, but I'm not willing to have the finger pointed back at me. I become judgmental. I become judgmental as a posture towards other people. But judgment is required. I mean, even in our culture that says don't judge, don't judge, cancels people online when it's like that was too far, don't they? It's fascinating that in a, in a, in a moment in which we're supposed to tolerate all things, we'll tolerate everything except for that. Why? Because deep inside, there's an understanding that a spade has to be called a spade. There's a fundamental understanding, even in our cultural moment, that there are certain things that are off limits, that there are certain things that are out of bounds. But see, what Paul is calling us to is not to judge like the world. We're not judging on our whims. We're judging only as God has already judged. We're rendering judgment that has already been given by God himself. This is why he says this in verse 9 of chapter 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or or of the greedy uh, or in swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would have to go out of the world. He's like, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I do with judging outsiders? It is, not those in, is it not those inside the church whom I am, or you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I want to be really clear here. It is not our job to fix the culture at large around us. That's above our pay grade. Too often we think that it's my job to judge the world with my hot take. I'd say on Twitter, but Twitter's like passe, and I don't even know what the new social media is these days. We think we need a hot take. We think we've got to fix our culture. We think it's our job to try to, 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 try to bring the world to an understanding of God's judgment. That's his job. Our job is to care for one another, to move towards one another, to love one another enough to pursue holiness together. And at times, to bring God's judgment to bear on a conversation. But we do this in a posture of humility, in community, and with the spirit of gentleness. But make no mistake, judgment is not only good, it is necessary. Now, this can feel really overwhelming. Gotta 
judge this and call this and understand this and respond this way and react this way. And, and here's the thing. If we were left here with only do more, do better, then I, I don't know. I'd feel pretty hopeless. But I want us to look at this seventh point that is made in this text. That is, as our Passover lamb, Jesus is our only hope. If you aren't familiar with the concept of Passover, it was a historical moment in which God rescued Israel out of Egypt. And, and in the midst of this story, in the midst of this rescue, he, he, he tells the people of Israel, I'm bringing judgment on Egypt. I'm bringing judgment on the culture around you. But you, as my chosen people, I will pass over if, listen, if you slaughter a lamb and paint its blood on the doorpost of your house, and I will pass over that house. And what God was showing them was foretasting who, what Jesus would do when Jesus would come. He was telling them that only the blood and the death of another can cover your sins. And in the fulfillment of time, Jesus came. And Jesus was slaughtered. And his blood was spilt to cover us. That God's wrath might pass over us. You see, our hope is not in our ability to do church discipline right. Our hope is in Jesus and his blood. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? I hope that we look at this text and it helps us recalibrate our understanding of sin. We need to see sin as it truly is. We need to, as we see it as it truly is, respond to it like it truly is. Not out of boasting and out of arrogance, but out of mourning and grief and contrition. Our response should be repentance, not deflection. So here's my question for you. Where have you minimized sin? Where have you arrogantly looked past it? Where have you minimized it, excused it? Said it's not that big of a deal. Frontline Yukon, I want to say this very, very, very clearly. If we read this chapter and think, oh, that's them, and we don't stop and ask, where are we like that? Then we are failing to let this word, this text, read us. We have blind spots. And the reality is, we are all blind to them. And what we're going to be doing as we walk through this 1 Corinthians is we're going to hit questions and situations and encounter truth preached at us to help us see our blind spots. So as we go week after week, I hope you come and engage and listen from a heart that wants to see sin as it is and respond appropriately. I want to see God make us, a holy people. Because the world needs a church that's holy, not because we do anything for them other than that we point to the Holy One. 
So might God, over the weeks and months to come, purify us and speak to us like a 